Welcome to a new episode of Full Stack Cast. In this podcast, we're going to take a closer look at the humans behind Full Stack Fest, our ever-growing roster of amazing speakers. Their talks inspire us by widening our perspective and deepening our knowledge. But behind each one's technical expertise, there is an often lesser-known, well-rounded human with a wide range of interests and a unique life path. Full Stack Fest is an inspiring conference about software. It's happening on the first week of September in Barcelona, and it's organized by Codegram, who also produced this podcast. I'm your host, Choose, and today's guest is Sarah Vieira. Sarah is a prolific open-source contributor, conference speaker, and self-proclaimed airport expert. She currently works at Code Sandbox, and she will be the master of ceremonies at the conference. Yeah, welcome to to the Full Stack Cast, and I've, I've been really looking forward to to this episode. I think it's a bit of a special episode, like a meta episode in a way, where we get to talk about um, not only your background but also your opinion on a bunch of topics that that will come up at the conference. And uh, maybe you can introduce yourself um, a little bit first. Yeah, of course. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sarah. I'm a develop. Uh, I'm currently a developer at a company called Code Sandbox. And I'll be the MC this year at Full Stack Fest. So this is preparation for me to wake up early and speak to people. And I'm in. <laughs> no, I think it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm weirdly like excited and scared at the same time. Because at the beginning, I thought it was a day and then it was three days. And I was like, oh, I can do this. It's going to be great. Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> I mean, you've, uh, you've, you've spoken at conferences. It's a little bit, it's a lot different uh, to MC at a conference, I guess. It's a lot more intense, I think. From my thing, my main difference is that it's less like uh, mentally draining to do MC because like you're not supposed to look smart. You're just you're supposed to be an idiot and that's fine. <laughs> uh, but it's more socially draining because you're supposed to talk all day. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, kind of. I think it's a it's a harder job than being a speaker. So I think it's the next level when when you have some experience speaking at a conference or the thing, then you get you are ready to be MC. Oh, thank you. I've never been an MC. Thank you. Well, actually, I was at the first conference, but it was completely improvised. Like it was our first conference. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been MC before before I was supposed to be an MC just because there was no one to speak, and I was like, I guess I'm doing this now. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was my case <laughs> as well. <laughs> So how um, how did you get started with uh, you know computers and everything? So my my story is actually kind of amusing. People find it kind of funny. Uh, so I've always been interested in computers. Before I did programming, I used to uh, dabble a lot in like like I did a bunch of stuff in computers, just random stuff like Photoshop and video editing and Cinema 4D and like a lot of random stuff. And then um, basically I was I was doing all of that stuff. Like I was trying to figure out what, like I knew that I liked computers, but I don't know if you, if you I don't know if you're like this, but I uh, was one of those people that would like really get into something. Mm. But then when she got into a level that she was like, okay with it, she'd be like, no, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so like I, this happened to everything. So I was like, there needs to be something that I actually like. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, and I remember that my dad wanted to make a website and he tried to make it by himself and he has like zero design skills. Not that I have any, but like his are way worse. And um, I was like, dad, like I'll, I can I can make you a better website. And he was like, but you don't know how to code. And I was like, I looked, looked at him and I was like, I'll fucking learn. So basically I learned how to code to prove my dad wrong, which in the end he won because I have no other talents. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, so I liked computers. That's when I realized that I liked coding because I, 
I was never a very smart kid in school, so I assumed that coding was for really smart people. I was like a uh, average in in school, so that was like my thing to be like, you know what? Like I can do this because I'm trying to prove you wrong. It's not like a I don't think I'm smart. I think there's this thing that everyone thinks that coding is for smart people, and I'm like, but I do buttons. A lot of it is a little bit of uh, gatekeeping, I think. But yeah, yeah, yeah no mostly, doubt. Mostly, mostly like, it's like anything, just putting a lot of time into it, and like yeah. Just continuing and not giving up. I think that's the only thing that works. Yeah. Also, there's one of those things, for example, uh, driving. No one, okay, almost no one knows how to drive before they pick up a car. Mm. Simple as that. Like, no one has a talent for driving. You just learn. Yeah. You may not be the best driver. I'm not the best driver. But you just learn and you pass and you're done. And that's it. Like, there's no gatekeeping there. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I mean, there is a little bit of gatekeeping. If you ask, like, older people, they'll be like, you know, ah, I've been driving for 30 years, blah, blah, blah. No one knows how to drive these days. Okay, so the thing is, everyone thinks that no one knows how to drive. Exactly, yeah. Like, that's just a thing. Like, I think that no one fucking knows how to drive, and everyone, like, every car thinks that no one knows how to drive. That's just life. And I can live with that. There's a name for that, right? I forgot I forgot what it is, but it applies to programming a lot. Like the, the notion or the, the thought that you are above average. And it turns out everyone thinks they're above average on like some scale. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And that, that does make sense to apply to programming as well. There are a lot of people who have like this God complex. There are a lot of people who have the opposite of a God complex, which means that they think they're way below average. Uh, but there are also a lot of people who have a, a God complex. And that does make sense. But I didn't know that was a name. I didn't know that was a, a thing. But I mean, what I've started to realize in the last couple of days is that everything has a name. Yeah. I mean, someone has to make up a name for everything. Yeah. Otherwise, you cannot tweet about it. It's only 140 characters. <laughs> you got to make small names, too. So, I mean, you got started, uh, right? Like, a lot of people get started. But um, you you took it a little bit further. And I see that you are really, really active on on GitHub. You organize a lot of things and you code a lot. Yeah. So there was... There was I. Oh, when I was younger, when I was working in Portugal and everything, it just looks like I moved 10 years ago. I moved last year. <laughs> but uh, when I was younger, like I used to struggle a lot with the fact that I liked coding on my spare time because that's not what the cool kids do. Mm. <laughs> the cool kids go do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> it's Portugal. It's fine. You can. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, The country where drugs are not legal, but they're not illegal and no one can really tell what the fuck is going on. It's great. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would recommend. Um, point is, um, yeah, so there was a time when I didn't code as much. I think my my main thing with coding and organizing stuff is that I learned everything from the internet, like from, ne- and didn't have a lot of money growing up. And even if I did, I didn't have a, a credit card or a bank account, so I couldn't buy stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned all, all a lot of the things that I know from random strangers on the internet who were nice enough to give it for free. So I attempt to give it back to, in that in that regard. Mm. As in, like, I learned everything from the internet in a free way, and I want you to learn everything from the internet, and I want you to learn it free. So that is mostly, like, it's kind of like a guilt that will never go away, <laughs> but also kind of like, it makes, it makes sense, because I didn't, I didn't go to school, I didn't, like, I didn't learn most of the things that I've learned from the start, I didn't learn by paying them. Like, I do pay for now for front-end masters, and I pay per head because I have a job and a credit card. But at the time, I didn't, and I was like, this makes sense that I would give back to the community for something that I needed when I was a kid. Uh, the meetups, honestly, it's because like I have this friend called Carolyn, and when I moved to Berlin, we have the dumbest ideas, and we just do them for some reason. Like There's no thing behind them. Mm. We're just like, we should make a meetup. And she's like, we should make a meetup. And then a meetup happens. <laughs> We've realized that we should make an events company. <laughs> 
<laughs> is this about like the meetup that you organized recently, the Queer JS? Yes, and it's probably also going to happen uh, in Barcelona. Actually, We're tr I'm trying to make it like oh, cool. more more global, and uh, by global I mean European. Uh, because that's our idea of global. <laughs> yes. I'm from a very small country, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know people needed visas until I was 16, um, which is actually true and very sad. So yeah, I wanted to make it like in more cities, in more countries uh, where people will not get pers persecuted. Like that's important. Mm. So it's probably also going to happen in Barcelona and I'll give more details on it like at, the, at this one. So this one was... Mostly, it was my idea in Carolyn's, but this one is like growing out of control. And uh, I think I need help. <laughs> so I'm getting like people to like organize others and like just like delegate work. <laughs> yeah, I think that's important. Yes. In Berlin, it's, I think it's easier. I think the community is uh, quite vibrant. So a lot of people will, will want to chip in probably and organize, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the problem is not the Berlin one. The problem is like the Berlin one uh, literally was like two emails. Problem is like, so people wanted to do it somewhere else. And like the, most of my problems come from like having to communicate with random human beings all the time to try and like make things happen in random places. And I think I'm becoming an adult because of this, because I, now I just make doodles all the time. And I'm like, when can you have this call? When can you do this? Is this okay for you? And I'm like, I should not be the adult in this situation. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> I think that's when I realized I was an adult as well, when I was using doodles. Yeah, I think it's doodle. That's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in this group because I'm going to London and people want to organize karaoke. And I'm the only one who keeps like, guys, fill in the doodle. We need to know when we're going. <laughs> I should not be the adult. <laughs> So, and it's also really fun to organize random meetups because people get excited because it's not like a normal JavaScript meetup and people like, I don't know, it's more wholesome. Yeah. Yeah. People are just there for fun. Like you don't, you get a lot of the people that really love programming, not the people that are gatekeeping or anything. You get the people that really like programming and just want to do something like out of the ordinary. We want to do another one like at the time of Comic-Con and stuff like that. Honestly, it's a great thing that I got myself into by accident. Yeah, that's good. I think organizing a meetup takes uh, a lot of, um, well, it just takes a, a fresh approach because there's a lot of meetups that have been once and never come back again because it's just so sad. Yeah. Like everyone's really serious and like no one's friendly and it's, it's really ridiculous. So Yeah, so that's also why, like, why we try to organize random meetups instead of trying to make, because if you make it monthly, like I had a meetup monthly and it becomes really hard to find speakers and you're not you're not making any money out of it and at the point you're not having fun either because it's hard to find i spoke like two times at my own meetup because i couldn't find speakers and you have to constantly find a place and like there's one place here in berlin called co-op uh, yeah which is completely free and it's amazing but like but it doesn't it's not open all the time so like we just make meetups surrounding when co-op is open that's why queer js on a 23rd it's not because pride is on a 27 <laughs> i didn't even know that hmm. it's literally because it was the only day that co-op was free <laughs> Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense. So like, yeah, I think it makes it funner and it makes it more chill instead of being like this thing where you need to do it every month and find speakers. You're just like, hey, you want to do a meetup? We also did Wellness JS, which was all about like uh, mental health and uh, talking about all of that kind of stuff and yoga. And like, so I just stopped doing the one that I was doing that was every month and started doing random meetups. And that's, that's, that's what I do now. I do random meetups. I love it. <laughs> cool. And and why did you move to um to Berlin? Or I, I guess you moved from Portugal to Berlin, right? Yeah. So one of the one of the 
big reasons was the community. Like uh, I wanted to be, so, I, I used to live in London for some time, but I had a bad experience with London because I was an hour away from work. I now as an adult can see that the problem was that and not London. <laughs> so at the time I didn't move yeah. back to London, uh, but I needed a place that I could like live out of my Portuguese salary at the time, which was 40K. So no Amsterdam, <laughs> no Norway, no, no. So, uh, and I ended up in, in Berlin because first of all, it had a community. It was relatively cheap. Berlin is still relatively cheap. And it was, I, I, I like the fact that it's very, um, how do you say it? Multicultural. Yeah. Yeah. I like the fact that it's very multicultural. So that's the thing that I like the most about London that I feel like there's still exists here. So, and I wanted to move out of Portugal because there is some, uh, there's somehow like a kind of lack of community. I felt like that. Maybe there is more now. And also, honestly, the weather. I can't do hot weather. Like, I can't. I die inside. Yeah, I think Berlin has a good balance. Yeah. The summer is short, but... Yeah, there was 37 degrees, but it was like two days. And I was like 22 and I love it. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind the cold, so that's fine. And I was like, I think Berlin's a good option. And there's also, like, there's always things to deal with Berlin. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I kind of did the opposite. Like, I lived in Berlin first and then moved to London. Um, mm -hmm. And I can definitely say that Berlin is still my favorite city in the world, probably, to live. Especially the community was so different. Um, how, how do you see the difference between, you know, the meetups and the community between the two countries? One thing that I realized that was, I was flabbergasted as someone who've lived in London, I was flabbergasted because I don't know when you've been to meetups in London, do you remember the security? Like every time you went to a meetup, you had to like sign in, you had to show your ID and like anyone that wasn't signed in would not get in. Oh like, yeah. That is, I was expecting that in London because like, I was like, Oh, it's because Portugal is a piece of shit that doesn't have that. And then, and then I got to Berlin and they were just like, yeah, it's over there. And like, no one asked you anything. And I'm like, this is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have to sign in. There's someone there at the desk just waiting for people. And there's a list. I remember that. Oh my God. At one time I could, I almost couldn't get in. I had to call the people from the office because I was one of the speakers. So I didn't sign in and I had to call the person to come downstairs and be like, no, it's okay. She's a speaker because I couldn't get into the fucking building. Jesus. And I was like, I was this close to just being like, oh, okay, I guess I can't speak. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think people are more serious about these things and stuff like that. Well, in Berlin, people just show up and are like, what's up? Like, no one cares if you signed up. Like, no one cares. It's just that you just go. Like, you want to go, you just go. Like, no one is going to hold you to that. While in London, I remember that. That was a huge issue. Like, I found that so weird because that was never a thing in Portugal. In Portugal, just show up as well. I think it's just London. I think it's not necessarily just London. I think it's Southern Europe, but I include Berlin in Southern Europe. I think Berlin is kind of an island separated from Southern Europe, but the culture is very similar. Like it's very relaxed and like very different from kind of German culture. Yeah, Berlin is not Germany. <laughs> Look at the airports. <laughs> I can, may I ask you a question? Like what was this thing with airports? Because I've seen like, so you define yourself as an airport person. And also I've seen some, some GitHub repos that have the airport uh, name in them. And I, I'll, I'll explain. So I kind of like, okay, so um, where are you from originally? Can I ask that? Uh, from Barcelona. Uh, okay. So I think, I don't think Spain people have the exact same thing. I think it's more, so like, if you're Portuguese, you assume that Portugal is the bottom of the pile of Europe for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, the, you think too, the Spanish, don't make fun of, don't make fun of what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. It's exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. 
You're like, this is the bottom of the pile. It cannot get any worse. Like, you think that Portugal is worse, but like, we're Portugal. So we're the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) So when I started traveling, I went to the Porto airport. Have you ever been to the Porto airport? Like, I live next to Porto. No. It's really fucking good. It's weirdly good. It's something that you would not expect out of Portugal. And so assuming that Portugal would be the bottom of the pile, I assumed that that was bad. Then I went to Luton. Oh boy. That- <laughs> yeah. So I went to, I went to a couple of ones, but they weren't bad until I went to Luton and I was like, what the fuck is going on? So basically my mental model was like, this is the worst of the, of Europe basically, because we have this idea because like we have no money and like everything is capitalism. Portugal is shit because it doesn't have any money. Cause that's how capitalism works. Right. Mm. Yay. And I was like, so this is the bottom of the pile. And then I started traveling and I was like, wait, that's not bad. Because I assumed that that was bad. And then I got this hate out of airports because I was like, if Portugal can make a decent airport, you can make a decent airport because we have zero money and not a lot of skills. (laughs) So I started getting really into airports because of that. It doesn't make any sense, but that's why. So in one way, like, do you do you? Like, look at the architecture of airports, how they're laid out, or like... It's mostly the... So, first of all, the easy of access to get to an airport. Like, how long does it take you to get to an airport? Like, one thing that I hated about London is that every airport is at least an hour away, except city. Every airport is an hour away. That bothers me so much. Like, so basically, just like, how long does it fucking take? And like, do you feel like a piece of shit while you're in it? And by that, I mean, like, do people treat you nicely? Does that make sense? Like, I feel like mm, I've been... Interesting. So, like, it's like taking Wizz Air and taking Lufthansa. Like, if you take Wizz Air, you feel like you're a piece of shit. <laughs> if you take Lufthansa, they make you feel like you're a human. Like, and you deserve good things to happen to you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, like, I've been to airports like Luton where I'm like, you are the bottom of the pile because you're in this piece of shit of an airport. And then you go to airports like Munich and you're like, you deserve everything good in your life. And I'm like, I do. I do. Thank you, Munich. <laughs> Yeah, no, I make I make I make the websites mostly because I enjoy making tiny stuff and that's about it. And I enjoy sharing the things I complain about with people. So now you work for a Code Sandbox, right? I've seen a lot of your stuff is there. Yeah, so one of the reasons that I started working there is because like I first of all it's not evil, which is very important. Yeah, that's a that's a plus these days. That's a big ass plus. Uh, <laughs> and like I really like the product because it helps like a lot of people get started with code way easier than Because it's easy for us because we already know how the terminal works. Like we already know how a bunch of this stuff works. But like if you tell someone, open up your terminal and run uh, NPM install, they're like, what the fuck does this mean? (laughs) So I really like the fact that Code Sandbox allows anyone to get started with things like Vue and React and like just make a huge thing. So yeah, that was one of the main reasons because I truly believe in the product. So I'm really, really lucky to work on something that I really like. Yeah. I think lowering the barrier to to start using some framework or some technology, I think it's good. Like I, n- I never used uh, JavaScript in Angular before, and just recently I started, you know, just dealing with all the tooling and what is Webpack, what is Babel, what is all this stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just want to try Vue because I heard it's cool. You know what I mean? So yeah. I just want to use the example. And you know, people put a lot of effort in tooling, and so that you can actually get started even with a terminal. I think it's just easier if you have a link, just go there. Just edit the code and and see it live and whatever. Yeah. Also, like you can just you can just share it as well. Like you can just share with other people. You, yeah. Yeah. It's just pure 
I just like, I like the fact that it's just, it's a good product and it's a product that helps people. And yeah, so it's something that I'm really passionate about. So I'm really, I'm really happy that I get to work there. So that was, that was the main reason. It was quite a, like a normal company to join a company with four people because I was like, this sounds great. (laughs) I have impulse problems. So what were you doing before? I was a developer advocate at a company in London, but I was working in Berlin. I was for a consultancy in London. So I quit my job. Uh, that was never going to go away. And I joined Code Sandbox. In, how do you find the difference between being a developer and a developer advocate? So in my case, like my case is very different because my company didn't have a product. Mm-hmm. But in my case, I mostly just, you teach, you learn things to be able to teach other people. So including talks and workshops and doing random projects, open source, and also like teaching the people in your company so they can grow as well. So it's a lot of that. Uh, I mean, if you work for a company that does have a product, it's usually more towards the product, like teaching people how to use that product and stuff like that. Hmm. But in my case, there was no product. So it was mostly just use new technologies and teach people how to use them, make open source projects and stuff like that. So the thing is, you never get to work in big projects. And that's something that I missed. Like you make small things, but you you can't just go like, oh, I made this and people use it. My button. Like, it's not a thing that I had. And it's something that I really missed, actually. It was one of those. I'm too young for this. It sounds like a cool job, but yeah. No, it's it, a very cool job. It kind of lacks the, you know, the, con- the I don't know how to say it, but the feeling of like continuing working on the same thing and seeing it grow and people using yeah. it and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, nice. that's the thing I'm, I'm, I'm missed the most. And Code Sandbox was perfect for that. And I really liked the product. So I was just like, you know what? I have impulse problems. I'm going to get the fuck out. I think we can we can afford it. I think yeah, it's that was part of our privilege that yeah. you know, we can easily find jobs. So. For a very long time, like I lived with the fact that I owed companies some, company something because they paid me like decent amounts of money. And there was one day that I woke up and I was like, I owe you nothing. Like I need to do my job properly. And besides that, I owe you nothing. So now I just have this idea if you're like, you can just quit <laughs> and you get another job. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot, a lot of people are realizing that. But when you start, um, you know, imposter syndrome and all that. So a lot of people... Have, feel kind of attached to the company that the company yeah yeah yeah. no i had that for a very long time so i get that so i see kind of a trend like in 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 the stuff you're doing it, it all kind of relates to the open web and you know you started like learning from the internet and you you built you've built a bunch of things to teach people and you work on a on a tool that basically makes that easier and i don't know if you've had a look at the peer-to-peer web which is kind of like a, a, a different approach i'm from portugal we know what we know what torrents are <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, when that started coming out, I was like, oh my God, they put torrents to good use. <laughs> Instead of porn. That's great. <laughs> I thought I thought kind of the same, like, you know, torrents is were kind of always gonna be illegal, right? Like yeah. it's always it's all these DRM and like copyright issues and stuff, but like putting it to to good use to make the web more like it it used to be or like it, it was supposed to be. I think that was genius. Yeah, no, that is completely genius. Like using any technology. So the problem is like, it's very easy to pick up a technology and use it for quote unquote evil because I never saw torrents as evil. Most I think it's mostly because like I come, I just, I just downloaded a bunch of torrents uh, and use it to a good thing. Like I saw this, uh, I think you're talking about the Beaker browser, right? Because I saw this talk at JSConf U. Yeah. And honestly, like the, just, just the fact that you can just put anything on the internet and it works peer to peer is amazing because it doesn't require any server. Yeah. Like you're removing a lot of the uh, control that companies like Amazon have. 
And let's just face it, Amazon is not pure in any way. Amazon is really evil. No. So like the more you can remove out of evil companies, the best. But on the other hand, I use Chrome. So, <laughs> so the thing is like, I believe that creating an open web where anyone can put anything on the internet is the future. So bring back the internet, basically the internet that we used to have with things like GeoCities before everything started being about microtransactions. Yeah. But it's hard because people also have to make money. And I think that's what happened was that everything was beautiful until people needed to eat. And then like things just got out of hand. But honestly, if the Beaker browser actually starts being a thing that more, more and more people use, I think the internet will kind of go back to what it was as in a means of sharing between you and another person and not between you, Mark Zuckerberg, and the other person, which is the point of the internet, I think. Like picking up something that is not evil and making it not evil. Yeah, I think the Bigger Browser is really hitting some some nice points there because it's really just like a Chrome. It's like a fork of Chromium, I think. Yeah. And it just like works like a normal browser, but then suddenly you can create a website and host it and suddenly it kind of magically works. So they did it really well to kind of hide the whole new idea and how how new and weird it is. Yeah, also because I think it attracted a lot of us that used to do torrents that were like, wait, I know what this means. Wait, you're, you're not using it for evil? That's amazing. Yeah. Because <laughs> we were kids like back at the time. So we didn't see the potential of these things. And we were like, it's amazing that someone did and actually used it to make the web better and find a way to not have to like not eat to pay server bills. Because like I can make things for free. I may just end up like I can make a server for free, but I may end up not eating. And they found a way to like circumvent that with tools that we already knew but didn't think of using them for not evil. Yeah, actually, I I do think many many years ago I I read somewhere that Spotify was doing that. So they were serving the streaming things from like peer to peer network, and I thought, oh, that's really smart because they're saving literally yeah. millions just by making using our own bandwidth, you know, to sh- to share the music. And I thought, why why is no no one else doing that? Basically, I guess it's a lot harder. I mean, if it's a streaming file, just a music, it's we've already kind of done that with Napster and all this stuff. So I guess the idea was there. But yeah, doing that with websites, that's that's quite new. And also means that it's just everything is just easier. It means that everyone has the power instead of only the people who have access to deployment tools, which honestly, I think Netlify actually fixed a lot because they have uh, their free tier is, is immense. And I think... There was a decline of people uh, putting things on the internet until Zite and Netlify, who allowed for easy deployment. So I think a lot of these things and a lot of the things that you see of people just sharing dumb shit can be also attributed to both these companies. As in, like, they did good. Yeah, I think it's a it's a step in the right direction. I think it's still for developers, but... It is, it is. So anything that kind of blurs the line between a developer and a, and a user, I think that's a good thing. And so one thing that I was really weirded out like i didn't know was that uh the i don't know if you know but you can drag and drop a folder into netlify to deploy your website instead of using github or other than see a lot yeah that has as many users as the rest that has as many users as the rest because there's a lot of designers who use it yeah and i was like wait what (laughs) so pure that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) that is fucking awesome yeah i didn't know that uh so that is that is pretty really really cool so yeah Anything that blurs the line is my is my thing. Honestly, I really i I think everyone should be able to put things on the internet, so I don't have to. <laughs> there's there's people who are um, kind of in favor of that, but there's the gatekeeping community. 
you know, like a developer is a very special, unique thing that no one can be and stuff. And I wonder how that will work because, you know, still the majority of developers, they, they think, you know, they don't want people making websites. They want makes they want to make the websites uh, for those people. My yeah. my idea is that like if you just want to share something you like or you have a biz a tiny business, like you should be able to make your own website. And I think there's tools already like that. Like there's Squarespace and there's things like Webflow, where it honestly help with that kind of stuff. I've used them both. I have feelings about both. Yeah. But like they're both really good for helping people get started. And I think these tools are perfect because if you want a big website, an actual app, like you can probably make it in Webflow, I think, but like it's painful. So like you're probably going to hire someone. If you want a small application, if you want a small thing that just says like, I have this restaurant and like, this is not my job. And I really don't want to get someone to build this and over overcharge me for this. I think there needs to be a balance between these things because if you have a small thing and depending on the country you're from, like you, sometimes you can't pay a developer. Sometimes you don't want to pay a developer because it's a, it's a side thing. You don't want to, you're not probably not going to make any money out of it. You just want to share it with people. And I feel like there needs to be a middle ground for these things. Like as developers, we should make applications and big websites and for things that can actually pay for them. And everyone that can should be able to put something on the internet. And that's what GeoCities was about and all the old websites. And I think we are trying to bring that back. And I feel like that's great. We shouldn't gatekeep the entire internet. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, that <laughs> does happen with almost every medium, though. But yeah, I, th I think it's exactly the same as, um, you know, being from Southern Europe and stuff. Um, you know, the, the Catholic Church, uh, when they were against translating the Bible, in a way, they they were doing exactly the same thing, right? That was a thing. Yeah, they were like, you, you know, the Bible needs to be in Latin because it's the you know the language of whatever, and only people who know Latin, which happen to be the you know the monks and and the priests and stuff, they can read it and they can interpret it and they can tell you what it means. You don't have to read it yourself in your kind of vulgar language. I don't know how they call it vernacular language. I don't know. So then the the whole Protestant reform was about like translating the Bible and like printing it so that people can read it at home and uh, interpret what it means instead of having a priest tell them what it means. I think that's a big difference. And I think it's the same when, when a small business can make their own website, suddenly they're a lot freer. They don't depend on some developer like charging them money or whatever to actually sell, you know, bread or whatever they're selling. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you see it uh, as a medium, it should be a lot more open than it is. It's still really cryptic and a lot of people don't really see it as, um, they belong there. They just, they're told, just create this account, Facebook account and post your things there. In a couple of years, there will be way more like information available. So I think we're at this, uh, like kind of a turning point in these times of things where I think like in 10 years, a lot more people will be making small websites and developers will be mostly for apps, but a lot of apps are on the internet now. So we'll still have a job. We'll just make more aggressive things like a newspaper and go sandbox and stuff will still need developers. But maybe the like the hairdresser next to my house won't. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. In a way, we shouldn't be worried about having a job or not. Like if if there's just fewer developer jobs in the future, um, that is because other businesses became more self-sustainable efficient without needing so many developers, then we pro we can probably be hairdressers or like bakers, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, there's already there's a lot of developers because there's a lot of developer jobs, so that doesn't make sense. So I don't know exactly how to connect. Like we were talking about the peer to peer web. I've seen that you also your website is a GraphQL API. Yeah. And that was that's really cool. I've never seen that before. <laughs> I really want to change it. 
the idea was that this this was when I was I was learning GraphQL. So I did that like that because I was learning GraphQL and I don't think it looks pretty anymore. <laughs> I don't think it was supposed to look pretty. <laughs> That's a good point. But it's just data, right? It's just data, but also it's a good thing because it keeps like it keeps the it keeps the HR people away, the ones that don't know any code, keeps them away because they don't know how to use it, even though it explains. Yeah, I mean, to to a lot of people, it might look like an error page. So, like, but to any developer, like, it explains what it is, and about oh, that's cool. But the other people, are like, I have no idea what the fuck's going on. <laughs> I really, I really like GraphQL as I think like it helped a lot in the development of front end. It made websites faster, period, and like the, we need that. <laughs> Like it also made a lot of things. It gave it all, it gave front end developers more power. Yeah, and like I've worked with in companies where like we just had to wait for back end developers. And if we had GraphQL, we could have made we could have like made dummy versions of that of that. We could have made like a a, a layer that was in between, and we would have decided what we would have gotten. And like I just keep looking back, and I'm like, damn, that would have been so fancy at the time. That would have been so nice. And I think it's something that is very very useful. And it's just it's just good for the front end and for the back end because it's just honestly I've never used it. I mostly use it as a middle layer between a REST API and the front end, and I think that's the perfect use case. Yeah, because everyone in the back end still has the power to make it super secure and fast on their end, and we still be like, no, but we don't need all of these things. We literally just need this. So we're gonna create a GraphQL endpoint that will get us like we like like we want it. And if you're going to take forever to make this endpoint, which is completely valid, we can just make dummy data and keep and start working on it. So I feel like you created this good balance between front end and back end by making, by putting a layer in between them where we give front end people more power and we don't take any power away from back end people. So it's really nice. Yeah. I find the same, like in my experience is the same thing and it makes everything more just easy, easier to work with. Yeah. You know, even if we um, believed in the concept of full stack, person and everything you know it still makes a lot of sense to start you know you can start with a front end just design a contract of what you need and then later you can implement it but you can start already with like dummy data and stuff or like swap it out you know mint project whatever backend you're using and it doesn't matter as long as the contract is is respected yeah which is really i think is really really cool i i feel it's a little bit of a fundamental idea it's not just a library that came out and that's it yeah also the the, the thing about graphql is that it's actually like it's just a spec like is that it can be implemented in any language or anything like hmm. it's technically just a spec so the one that was released was the javascript implementation but like it's technically just a spec so you can implement it in any language in anything and it's just a, a query spec for anything and i think that's it's not attached to anything and i think that's what made it take off was that it was just okay so you can make a graphql server like this and but you can implement this in any language and it took off because of that because you weren't bound to using javascript or using php or using ruby or using whatever you could use it with anything yeah i think there was a smart move as well they were smart about it and now it's also a federation which is nice instead of being just the people at facebook in this case so they started getting other people to try and help out with the spec which is a nice thing to do because it's it grew way out of facebook's control basically yeah i think that's a uh, smart even for facebook as well if they wanted adoption because with react i remember there were a lot of problems companies that basically forbid their employees from using react because of the license terms and things like that yeah i, I know that in at microsoft people couldn't use react because of that yeah but then the, they did make it mit which was nice cool so what's your opinion on uh, WebAssembly and you know, especially since Lynn Clark's announcement, like I think it took a lot more 
traction. Uh, it used to be just like kind of like mscript and just some obscure thing to run C programs on the browser. But I think now it's uh, it's becoming a lot of a uh, a lot more big. Honestly, I think WebAssembly, like I don't think it will replace JavaScript, but I don't think that's the point. I think we'll complement JavaScript on things that JavaScript is very slow on, mm -hmm. like doing big computational stuff. Like JavaScript is like for, for one example of that that I can give you right now because we wanted to implement that was um, the do you use VS Code as your editor? Yeah, yeah. So VS Code is all made with Java TypeScript, whatever. Same shit. Yeah. Uh, but JavaScript actually not same shit. It's way harder. What I mean is like it all compiles to JavaScript. Um, so want to make clear that it's not the same thing, <laughs> and I have cried about it. Continuing. <laughs> so. Um, one of the things that is actually not JavaScript or TypeScript is the search. Mm. The search is actually Rust, and that's why it's so fast. Oh, I had no idea that they already had yeah. WebAssembly and VS Code. They, they, they have a Rust library, Ooh. and this was because we were trying to look at it, basically. And Figma also uses Rust. That's why Figma is so fast. So, like, there is... For computational stuff, I think you will move a bit away from JavaScript to move into languages where it's actually supposed to be used for computational stuff. And I think that's the future. If we want to make the web faster, we can't just make JavaScript faster because like up to a point, JavaScript won't be faster. Yeah. So I think that is kind of the future to use it for heavy computational stuff, to use it for things where JavaScript doesn't make sense. So I think it's a complementary thing. I'm not sure how other people feel, but in my, in my opinion, it's a complementary thing. Where, for example, Figma uses it like you have the entirety of the Figma website, which is a in-browser design tool, and all the computational stuff is made with WebAssembly, and all of the UI stuff is made with JavaScript. And I'm like, that's perfect. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think that, like people are still trying to find the sweet spot between when to use WebAssembly and JavaScript, but I think that's a good, um, a good approach. Like the UI stuff is in JavaScript, and then all you can offload to WebAssembly, you do if it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, yeah. that's quite promising as well. So what about serverless, which is a, another big topic at the conference? Um, well, what do you think about the concept itself, but also what do you think about the move? More people in, uh, are trying to use, uh, you know, lambdas and Azure functions and things like that instead of uh, traditional servers. I think in like 90% of the cases, it makes sense. I think one of the problems that arise from that is that a lot of companies moved completely to only hosting serverless. Mm -hmm. And like sometimes you need an open connection. Yeah. Like, for example, to use sockets, like you need an open connection. There are things that just don't work on serverless. Uh, and there are companies who moved completely to serverless and they're just like, figure out a way. But I think in 90% of the time, like it made me, if, if, if I find it way easier to make, like, I don't have to make an entire server just to make an endpoint. Because let's face it, like a lot of the things that we make are just endpoints that call other endpoints to make a thing in that other endpoint. And that can all be done with serverless and it's cheaper and it's faster. So serverless is, I think, up into a point, the future, but we need to find a balance. Like not everything can be served. It's like Jamstack. Not everything can be a Gatsby site. A lot of things can. It's insane how many things actually can be a Gatsby website, but not everything can. And it's like the thing we need to like find, I think, a balance in serverless where we're like, okay, like this is fucking dope, but not everything can be serverless. Yeah, I think that happens with a lot of technologies. When they come out, mm -hmm. people are like, yeah, let's use this for everything. Well, at the beginning, it's like, what is this for? Second is, let's use it for everything. And then finally, you find a sweet spot and you say, okay, yeah, maybe it makes sense. I think what you say, like for the glue code that, you know, the kind of little bits and pieces of code that could be lambdas, but before we didn't have this concept. One of the things that we have serverless on, I mean, we technically have a server, but it runs on Zite, so it completely runs kind of serverless, is the the service that we have on Code Sandbox that deploys to Netlify mm -hmm. because it's an endpoint. That's what it is. Like it's an endpoint. It gets a zip file and ships it to another site. There's no need to put that in our like actual huge server. That can be a completely off thing that is just completely like, 
it's off that part and it's just a tiny service, quote unquote, that can, can run completely serverless because it doesn't have any state. It just gets the thing and pushes it out. And that's it. We also, the, the thing to get the types and everything, all of that is serverless because these are things that make sense. But like you couldn't imagine like it would be really hard to make all of Code Sandbox serverless. So that's kind of what I mean is finding that sweet spot. I feel like that only comes with time, but serverless has helped so much to make anyone like, that's the thing. It helped people feel empowered as well. Yeah, especially when it's just an endpoint, right? When it's just an endpoint, you can, uh, the classic example is the Netlify site that you just drag and drop a bunch of things. And then there's one thing. Well, actually, it's, some of these patterns are now in Netlify, like forms and things like that, right? They're part of the Netlify offer. Yeah, but they also they also support functions. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Netlify also supports Lambda functions. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. So you can have your, like your clean ass website, like just a Gatsby website. And then you have a function. Like I have this website that literally just tells you like if it's raining outside and just calls an endpoint on Netlify <laughs> that goes to the thing and brings it back the data. Like I want to, uh, like I want it to. That's really cool. It, it also removes a lot of uh, bike shedding of, you know, oh, we need an endpoint. Okay. So are we going to host it on AWS? It's going to be an EC2 machine. How big is it going to be? What technology are we going to use? There's no discussion. It's just a function. Yeah. Just put it there. Netlify. That's it. Yeah, I think that's a lot better. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. It's beautiful. Like anything that can make it easier, it's beautiful. Yeah. Honestly, that's, that's, that's my idea. It makes it way easier, but it's scalable. So that's good. Like sometimes people like you make things that are very easy, but then they're not scalable and you're like, shit. <laughs> you know, like even if you're an experienced developer, you can maybe, you know, use Node.js and do your thing. But then to take it to production ready, kind of, you know, scalable and stuff, it's a whole other set of skills as well, which is, you know, more more barriers to having something working. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, you know, now now we know about serverless and like WebAssembly, everyone kind of agrees like, yeah, there's some future in that. But do you see any other kind of thing that's up and coming? Or have you heard of anything that you think might be, you know, the next thing that we're going to talk about in like two or three years? I don't know. That is a very good question. I think honestly, compiled to JavaScript, things are coming back, which I'm not sure how I feel about that, hmm. but they're coming back. Like uh, TypeScript and like uh, another example is compiled Framework, so like Svelte is small because it's compiled. Ah, yeah, Svelte. That one's really interesting. Yeah, it's like a very interesting approach to that. And I think that is something that will maybe do a comeback. And I think those two things at least. And honestly, I think we'll talk way more about peer-to-peer -peer stuff. Like right now is a very close thing. Like uh, some people know about it. Like a lot of people know what peer-to-peer -peer is. But talking about it in an internet spectrum, I think in two years it will be a more of a standard, honestly. Yeah, that might be. I'll be really happy about that. So what do you think about, you know, the, the compiled to JavaScript languages, they have an interesting property, which is they, in a way, they obfuscate the web, you know, the, the web that we use to view source code and, and see how things work. So how do you feel about that trade-off? Okay, so my thing is that, for example, I, I use CSS and JS, and that has ruined my, <laughs> my ability to search for images, <laughs> to search for <laughs> class names. So I'm like, I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I guess we it becomes a bit more normal that we're giving up something for, you know, yeah. for a faster, like more efficient. I I know that the I think it's the Basecamp guy, the DHH. I don't know if you've heard of this guy, but he's like really adamant mm -hmm. that know that, you know, the source code should be viewable on the on the browser and you should be able to learn from it like in the nineties, you know what I mean? To some extent like I like his idea, but that's not very applicable to the way we have the internet today. Like to the extent that apps have grown, like if you make everything visible, your app will probably be slower. Yeah, because you can't you can't use things like CSS and JS. You can't uh, a lot of preprocessors, even in CSS, like you can't use them because that's not the code that you're in. Uh, you have to use pure JavaScript, 
which honestly I'm okay with. I have mixed feelings about TypeScript, so that doesn't really bother me. But it's mm. it's one of those things where like it keeps you from trying new things that may be actually better and drive the web forward. So instead of that, why don't you make it for your shit open source, boy? Just put it on GitHub and people can learn from it anyway. I feel like there's a sweet spot and I think that sweet spot is like, okay, so you can't you can see this code, but it's compiled, so it's not going to help you a lot. Even but to that point, you can't use WebAssembly because WebAssembly is gibberish after compilation. So like put it open source, then people can still learn from it. And you can still use new things like WebAssembly. Source maps address this problem a little bit, right? You could go to a website and say, have a header that says I'm a developer, and then it serves you the source maps as well. And then you can, or just when you open the inspector, yeah. it just downloads the source maps and then you can see the code, you know? Like that that could be frictionless actually without any kind of extra effort. Yeah, it's finding a, a, a sweet spot between things. And that's our problem as developers and we know it. <laughs> so... I mean, just because you mentioned that you have mixed feelings about TypeScript, I think that's uh, there's an interesting story right there. So I would like to you to express those feelings, <laughs> just to see like you know what your concerns are or like your highlights. I don't like TypeScript. I I have nothing against TypeScript. The implementation of TypeScript, I think it's very well implemented and it's a very good piece of technology. I think the problem is, in most cases, it's not needed and types aren't real. Like it just compiles the JavaScript. You can't know what comes from an API, mm -hmm. and that's the biggest problem. I, it doesn't actually, like there have been studies that says it doesn't really decrease bugs that drastically. It just makes you feel better about your code. Mm -hmm. I feel like TypeScript is, is needed sometimes. I feel like for design systems, I feel like there's a lot of, it makes sense to use TypeScript, because like if I want to import a button from a design system, like I want to know what I can use, what props that button has, for example. But mm -hmm. I think the issue is that people started using it for everything and it ups the barrier of entry by so much when you're just making a small Gatsby website, you don't, you may not need TypeScript. <laughs> you know, especially for people who don't necessarily have a, a huge background in, in programming, maybe they're designers or they're just trying to make a website quickly in view or something. Do you think that really makes it a lot harder for them? I think so, because it's a completely different, like people say that, one thing that I've heard is like, oh, TypeScript is just JavaScript to type. No, that's Flow. <laughs> yeah. That's Flow. Flow is more like just JavaScript to types. TypeScript is a completely different language. I didn't know what an interface was. Like, it's the only thing that uses interfaces in the front end. Mm -hmm. um, it's complicated and it requires a compilation step, which is actually not that needed anymore because there's a Babel plugin. So that's good. That's, that's very good. But like, it, it, I think, removes a little bit of the openness to people to try and go into open source and like change stuff because they don't know TypeScript and it will become this thing of like, you need to know TypeScript to get a job. And I don't yeah. feel like that's fair. <laughs> I don't know because it's, first of all, it's something that you can learn at the job. Second of all, it's like, guys, it's TypeScript. It's not, it's not real. <laughs> that's the, that's the best argument. It's not real. It's not realizing like it just, it doesn't, it compiles the JavaScript. Yeah. Like it's a very good tool and it helps in a lot of things, but in the end it compiles the JavaScript. Like, Types are not real, Chad. <laughs> yeah, in a way, like, um, you know, everyone who uses TypeScript, they're expected to know JavaScript um, because yeah. in the end, in the browser, it's JavaScript that's going to run and like in the debugger and everything, you're going to see JavaScript. So yeah, in a way, it's it's another compiled to JavaScript thing that you're expected to know JavaScript anyway. So it's less real than other compiled languages. Maybe it's, you know, you could argue that. Yeah, it's mostly, that's mostly my thinking. As in like, I have no problem with the technology. I use TypeScript. 
I don't think in a lot of things that we're using is necessary. And I've voiced my things with Yves plenty of times. He's like, type I'm like, we're not talking about it. I'll just do it. <laughs> it's fine. But I think it's necessary, not necessary, but I think it's, it helps in some things. I think that like everything we have, the problem is that like I've known developers that now don't open the browser to test if things work. They just assume that TypeScript is going to fix them for it. Like if, type, if TypeScript builds, you don't have to open the browser. I'm like, that's not how it works. <laughs> You have endpoints, you have things like it's a, it's like, no, <laughs> there needs to be a balance between these things. And I feel like there will be a balance in about two years. Right now we're just at that phase. Like we had that Redux phase where everyone used Redux for everything. And now we're at that balance where like, maybe I don't need Redux. <laughs> so I feel like it's just a balance thing. I don't know. I, as you may have noticed, I don't really like when people start using something for everything. I think that I've noticed that. <laughs> I think that's my problem. Right Which is, it's healthy. I think that's healthy. So do you have any other kind of uh, strong feelings about like any other technology nowadays in the web? I like CSS and JS. <laughs> okay. But the problem is people think that everyone that uses CSS, there's a lot of people that think that people that use CSS and JS hate CSS. I love CSS. CSS is life. CSS is love. But like, oh my God. God, maintaining CSS is not life and it's not love. <laughs> I think maintaining CSS and like getting good at CSS is really hard. Yeah. So anything that makes it easier, I think is a good thing. Yeah. So I have feelings that I really like CSS and JS, but I was one of, I was one of the people that really hated it as well in the beginning. So <clears throat> I, I know, I know where people are coming from because I was like, this is not how the web is supposed to work. You're supposed to have HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. And then I was like, wait, what? This is beautiful. What do you mean? I can just name my component header explanation and it's a header it explains the header this is gorgeous this makes perfect sense and i was like i was wrong and i apologize <laughs> like i know where people are coming from and i get that the problem is also that a lot of people including myself like i have this issue is that we started using it for everything and it's not necessary for everything so i really like css and js like in case of things that i don't i just i don't like unnecessary making things complicated just because yeah just because like you're making it's not even over engineering is making the code more complicated just because like using a lot of libraries and like frameworks and tools just because and then like people can't really touch that code because they don't know that's very specific tool or that very specific framework yeah there's a trade-off between you know like the whole best practices thing and like we have to use this and this and this compiler and this thing and then in the end maybe it's not needed for a for a small website but it's hard it's hard to respect that trade-off or like understand it well no it's really hard as i make a one one page website with css and js so i get it <laughs> Everything must be JS. Everything that can be written in JavaScript will be written in JavaScript. <laughs> With this thought of everything will be written in JavaScript, we shall leave you now. <laughs> everything will be written in JavaScript. That's a threat. That's a threat. <laughs> if you try to write it in everything else, it will be eventually written in JavaScript. In this case, TypeScript counts because it de deploys to JavaScript. With that thought, uh, I think we can close. And, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. Uh, at the conference in September. Yeah, same. Which is just a couple months away. Yeah, yeah. really excited. And uh, and yeah, I'll see you in September then. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. And to our listeners, I hope you've all enjoyed this episode. If you want to see Sarah on stage, you can go to fullstackfest.com. Until next time, and see you all in September. 